Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. The Cerebral Art Talks podcast starts 2021 featuring four men, three artists and one collector who were all previously incarcerated. I want to acknowledge these men for their ambition and drive and the ability to thrive and persevere despite being incarcerated. In 1997, Helene Flowers was arrested at the age of 16 and sentenced to two life sentences in the District of Columbia. During his incarceration, he discovered his love for literature, art, and began to write poetry. In the year 2005, he started his own publishing company and published 11 books covering the genres of poetry, self-help, financial literacy, and his memoir. He is an advocate for love and feels love is the revolution. Also in 2005, Halim was featured in the Emmy Award-winning documentary, Thug Life in D.C. In 2016, D.C. local legislators proposed a new bill to allow those that were convicted of an offense that was committed while they were under the age of 18 to be able to petition the court for resentencing and release after serving 20 years imprisoned. Ironically, this bill would not apply to those that had been convicted as juvenile lifers in the 80s and 90s before enactment of the law. Halim then contacted the mayor and all of the D.C. council members. He had someone read his personal testimony at the public hearing, and he conducted a social media campaign so D.C. citizens would testify at the hearing. On April 4, 2017, the Incarceration Reduction Amendment Act was enacted into D.C. law to apply retroactively. Halim was then released from prison after 22 years. Upon his release, he was awarded two fellowship awards, and in 2020, he signed to be represented by the Stella Jones Gallery for his visual art practice. He is also attending Georgetown University through its Prison and Justice Initiative. It gives me so much pleasure to feature Halim Flowers on my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I am so impressed with all that he has accomplished. Thank you and enjoy. Halim, welcome to my Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I am delighted to feature you for many, many reasons, and my listeners will understand as we talk. Uh, So welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's an honor. So am I. So let's start with you as a young person, a younger person, I should say. When in your life were you influenced by art? When did you realize that you're an artist? Um, wow. 
I was first influenced by art, even though it wasn't recognized as a credible form of art through hip hop and rap. And when I was like 11 and 12, I started like doing freestyle rapping. Um, but I didn't recognize I was an artist until probably during an institutional lockdown in 2017 in this federal prison in California. And one habit that we have when we get these institutional lockdowns, the nerves of us that's incarcerated, we keep all these almanacs. And I was like researching almanacs and um, I saw like a lot of Greek and Roman uh, rulers were poets, which led me to look up um, what is defined, what is defined arts in the encyclopedia once we came off the lockdown. And I saw that poetry was considered one of the highest and not the highest form of fine art. And that's really when I realized I was an artist. I had already published like three poetry books at that time already, but I just never saw myself as an artist um, because I thought that all art was just visual. When did you start painting? I started painting in March 2020 during the quarantine. Oh, what inspired that? My wife. All great ideas come from the woman who we admire the most, but women never get the credit. It always goes to his story and not her story. So... But my wife, we was just coming from my studio in Georgetown because um, I had just I had a fellowship at, at Halcyon Arts Lab in Georgetown in D.C. They gave me like a free studio, free condo and a, like a stipend monthly. And um, when we knew that we were going to be locked down for the quarantine, my wife and I went and grabbed some of my stuff from the studio, mainly my books, my poetry books. And um, on our way back home, she was like, let's stop at the art store and just pick up some paint. You know, some give us something to do while we locked down on quarantine, and that's how I just started painting. That's wonderful, mm -hmm. and thank you for giving kudos to your wife. Um, I certainly appreciate that. Um, are there any particular artists whose art you admire? First, first and foremost, Jay Z. I know he's not a visual artist, but you know he's a hip hop artist. He just impacted my life so much with his his way with words, his entrepreneurship. Um, his perspective and through listening to him um, is how I learned about John Michelle Basquiat and the cruel thing about prison is that we don't have access to the internet or social media or smartphones so when Jay-Z was rapping about when I first heard him rap about John Michelle Basquiat in 2012-13 I didn't know whether he was talking about some exquisite champagne or wine or, <laughs> or, or you know some vacation spot I was very curious about what the hell is a Basquiat. And then um, one of the practices that I had during my incarceration was that I had um, kept up a subscription to the Wall Street Journal. So uh, Wall Street Journal had like an article on John Michelle like in 2016, 17. And it didn't have any picture of his work. It was just a picture of him and it was explaining who he was and what he, and what he meant to the visual art world. And that's when I said, wow is someone who looks like me. And then I started to read the articles about like Rembrandt and Picasso and Banksy and Pollock and, and really started to engage intellectually with the visual art before the practice of it. And uh, but definitely uh, John Michelle Bosco and Jay-Z. But you know, I've evolved into like Cicely Brown and uh, George Kondo and, and Esteban Whiteside and just Chris, Chris Wilson. And um, so it's just so many, but those are like really the, the, the artists that I'm really like impacted now by that's alive, Esteban Whiteside, 
um, Chris Wilson, Cicely Brown, and George Kondo. And those who have passed away, I like Cy Twombly and John Michelle Basquiat. Hmm, interesting. So it's a real combination of both abstract and figurative artists. Um, yeah. Yeah, mostly abstract, though. Um, if I name anybody who do, who, I don't think I name, well, Chris Wilson does figurative, but what what appeals to me more than his art is his ethic, his work ethic, hmm. and his business savvy. I think most artists buy into like this starving artist narrative that I don't. And I think Chris is uh, someone who was like formerly incarcerated, transitioned to the visual entrepreneurship world and does it on a high level that I aspire to. And to see his ethic every day working on his craft, working on his craft and, and, and being successful in the monetization of it and controlling it and not like he's not even with a gallery. Uh, like I am, and I'm just amazed at his ethic and his, and his um, it's just his it's drive. You know, it's amazing. Do you work every day? I work every day, every day. Um, right now, well, because working every day is not just painting. But also, like I'm holding this book about color theory. So if I'm not at the galleries or the museums, I'm watching uh, documentaries and videos on YouTube. Even when I'm looking at. Uh, TV shows like Lovecraft Country and American Gods, I'm getting ideas from paintings, from music that I'm listening to, shows and movies that I'm, I'm always working. I'm always, my mind is always thinking about what subject, how can I address um, something on canvas through a strategic way with color and imagery and text and hit, you know, hit these subject matters from perspective of what what new information can I offer in the age of information that people are not privy to yet? That's the greatest challenge. And if they are privy to it, um, how can I do it strategic and in a way that compels them to see something that they already know in a new way? So when you're in your studio alone creating, mm-hmm. do you take into consideration your audience, those who will see your work? <sighs> yes and no. Um, sometimes I'm just so moved by a concept mm-hmm. that it's sometimes it's it's so strong that I'm I'm dreaming about stuff to do, right? And it's so vivid. It's not even like a dream, it's a vision. So when it's that that when I'm that inspired, um, I probably just go in there and just create it and put it down. But often sometimes it's like I wanna, I wanna, I wanna. I want to address an issue, but now I'm thinking about the audience because I don't, I don't want it to be too vague, but I don't want it to be too clear. Mm-hmm. So I'm always like a lot of my work reflects the dichotomy of me and um, in life, you know, and, and that juxtaposition between being extremely clear, but yet extremely vague. <laughs> I love that. Are memories from your childhood or any other period in your life reflected in your work? Absolutely. I mean, when you consider that, um, I went to prison as a child <laughs> and then I didn't come home. So I was 38. So, um, my, and then growing up in DC during the crack era, crack era when DC had the, such a high rate of murder. Um, so it was just so much about my childhood was so traumatic but also it was so dope because it was like in the eighties and nineties, when I grew up, we had the birth of hip hop and 
you know, hip hop evolutionized the world through fashion and film and culture. So to be able to be birthed at a time that hip hop was birthed and grow up with it, I look at hip hop as like a sibling, you know? So even though we had the trauma, but we was able to create this new genre of art about these traumatic experiences that we were having through like crack cocaine and poverty and gun violence and mass incarceration. And it was just so raw and it's so raw and so powerful that the, the masses of the world just took to it and it influenced other um, forms of creativity. Whereas though people like Kanye West can, you know, be designers and, and Virgil White can, you know, do what he's doing in the fashion world. And I, I don't think any of that would have been possible for, you know, socially constructed black women and men had it not been for hip hop. What pleasure do you derive when you're alone in your studio creating art? Um, the pleasure that I get, I really believe, I mean, when you do decades in prison and people always reminding you that you're going to die in prison mm. and you don't believe it, right? You just like probably are like a naturally optimistic person. So when I step in the studio, I have this like, which might be an impossible level of optimism that I can create something in this moment that can help someone who doesn't have a particular lived experience to gain this lived experience with engaging with this body of work in a visceral way um, that not only just impacts them on a soulful level, but compels them to use this uh, visceral connection to be an agent of love and an agent of change. Because if you're an agent of love in a world like this, that's so uh, hell-bent on division and strife and hatred, um, then you become an agent of change, you know? So for me, it's like, I love to have, I'm so honored, first and foremost, to be alive, to be healthy, to be home in society, and to be, the universe has provided me with all of these resources to create. I feel like it's, it's like my divine purpose, you know? Because people who look like me, who come from where I come from, they don't do what I'm doing. And I don't feel like I'm exceptional. I just feel like I'm, I'm only an exception because I've been able to get the resources. And if other people get the resources, they do what I'm doing and more. So when I'm stepping in the studio, it's just I'm just so honored and so thankful that I've been favored to have these resources to do the work of love. And, and if this piece just impacts one person to love themselves and others a little bit better, um, I feel like I've done, I've done something more miraculous than walking on water. You know, I've touched the soul. Well, you certainly have impacted me. Circling back to something you said earlier, you commented that when you were incarcerated, you read the Wall Street Journal. Mm -hmm. So I'm sort of curious. Um, what motivated you to do that, to read the journal on a regular basis? Um, I started selling drugs when I was 12. And I took my pre-SATs when I was 11. I scored high. I was able to take um, 
medical student courses at Howard University when I was 11 mm. during a summer program that they had. I was always academically just gifted. Um, but I was growing up in poverty. I wanted to get the hell out of my community. And I understood that it took money to, to move. And it was no opportunities um, available to me at that time at the age of 12 that I could see from my immediate examples in my village, my community, other than selling drugs. And, and I made that bad decision um, because I had an ambition and a drive to want something better for myself and my loved ones. And so when I went to prison, I realized that the, I wasn't incarcerated mainly because I was innately criminal. It was because I was born in a situation um, that later on I would understand about redlining and things of that nature. But I was born into like a form of intergenerational poverty and intergenerational illiteracy. And I realized that the only way that I could transcend that, I never worried that I would get out. I knew that I would get out, but I knew I didn't want to get out and be uh, in a state of abject poverty and uh, menial, uh, low-wage labor due to my incarceration. I knew I wanted to, I wanted to come out and thrive. And while I was in prison, I wanted to do something legally to make money. I didn't want to just be like, keep asking my mother for money. So I had to learn about money and banking and finance and investments. And for me, outside of my physical and spiritual health, my financial health is so important to me. And I, and I read the Wall Street Journal every day, even to this day. So that was my obsession with it, you know, my, my spiritual and mental health, uh, my physical health, and, and, and my financial health. And because I want to be a philanthropist, I was reading all these great biographies about, and autobiographies by Andrew Carnegie and John D. Rockefeller, and, you know, uh, all these were considered like great philanthropists. And I said, I want to be a philanthropist. And I, <laughs> I can do it through my artwork before I get the money, but I, I want to get the money and do some, some, some great things for my community and people in the world as well. So, and I just believe I can do it. You know, the scripture says it only takes a mustard seed of faith. So I think I can galvanize up a mustard seed to move a mountain. <laughs> I tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by uh, what you've accomplished. You started your own publishing company in 05. Mm -hmm. uh, elaborate on that for us. I had spoke at a spoken word contest in a federal prison. And, uh, you know, the guys I was were kind of amazed at the subject matter. I was only like 22. So I was like recited a couple of poems about Che Guevara and Ho Chi Minh. And, you know, that's when I was kind of like in that socialist communist awareness phase of world economics and, you know, that type of history with Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. So. I think the guys just underestimated that I, I was doing that type of reading. And, um, and they told me, you should just publish a book. So I was like, I'm gonna publish a book of poetry. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know, have no idea how I would do it. Um, but you know, I believe in universal law. You know, we don't attract what we are, but what we want. And you know, as the universe had it, or people say, has God had it? I just end up meeting two guys um, inside the institution, one in particular, a jailhouse lawyer named Michael Norwood. He had his own publishing company. He had published two books and he gave me the know-how. He had, I had an example, a working living example, and he gave me the know-how and I executed the plan. 
And um, it changed my life forever because I never forget that he told me, he said, because I used to play sports in a prison. He was like, you know, now you are a CEO and you are a, a published author. And he said, you can't ask people to spend their money on your book. And then you're out on the football field or the basketball court throwing a tantrum because the referee made a bad call. He said, people are not going to want to buy into your brand. So you have to start to conduct yourself as a corporate executive officer and a publisher and an author. And that just changed my whole paradigm of how I, it helped me to transcend, you know, natural level of immaturity of coming to prison at the age of 16 and not having any adult experience in the society, but it put me in a, in a, uh, a billionaire mentality, you know, to where I had to conduct myself as an asset to humanity. <laughs> but you published 11 books. I mean, that's a, quite a few books. Is it all poetry? No, four poetry. One is um, a memoir about my life. Um, one is financial literacy. Two are like positive thinking, self-help books. One is like a cognitive therapy workbook for young offenders to address their criminal rational think ra- criminal and rational thinking errors. One is a, a self-help book uh, on how to do time effectively, how to use that incarcerated time to, to develop yourself and to make a, a successful transition to society. So it's like different genres, uh, all nonfiction. And um, I just, you know, I had a lot of time to think. I had a lot of time to write. And I have a strong desire to help people to think better, to live better, you know, to speak better and be better. And um, and I just gave of myself, you know, 11 times over to do what I can do, you know, to be an asset to humanity, um, even while I was in prison, you know, to get that message out, outside of the walls. So d- did you use the books to get the message throughout the prison? Um, yeah, throughout because every prison I would go to, I would donate all of my books to the library and just, you know, through through coming and going, I'd meet younger people, older people, share my literature with them. And just through the writings, I was able to also to develop um, beneficial relationships with individuals and institutions in society that led to me getting the law changed um, for juveniles in the District of Columbia who were sentenced to life so that we can be resentenced and released. So me sharing my story through my writings and through my outreach was how I was able to connect with local attorneys and uh, advocates and DC council members and the mayor to be able to get the law passed and get it passed uh, retroactively. And today we was able to get the law extended instead of to those who committed their offenses under the age of 18 to under the age of 25. So we got that passed today. Today? today. Wow, today. that's amazing. Today, yeah. And I actually was released a couple of weeks early last year um, because the city council wrote a letter to my judge asking that she release me early so that I could come and testify at the first public hearing that we had uh, about that law. Uh, and that was in March 2019, so we just got it passed today. Took us a year and a half, but we've been doing some some dope stuff in D.C. Um, returning citizens. That's wonderful. So I want listeners to know that today is December first, twenty twenty. Yeah, you must feel great. What yeah, an accomplishment! Crazy, <laughs> yeah, my phone is gonna be ringing like crazy though. That's the that's the downside of it. <laughs> Everybody who I know is still incarcerated, they gonna be. And what is passing? When we coming back? 
the same thing I was doing when it passed. You know, yes. you're just so happy, you know, that you, I remember I cried. Somebody just hit me on Instagram, somebody that's incarcerated. was like, man, I cried. I'm happy. And, you know, um, because now he has light. You know, you have people who have 100. One of the young guys from my community has 100 years. And he came to prison when he was like 18, 19. And now under this new law, after serving 15 years, he can have the opportunity to petition the court for release. So it's going to give him incentive to do his time in a productive manner to develop that um, effective resume for release to present to the courts. And um, it gives him hope, you know? So it's just, it's just, it's amazing. I never saw this coming. I come from the era where even the Clintons and the Bidens was calling the super predators. So you could just imagine what the ultra right wing conservatives were saying. Um, even the liberals were saying, you know, lock us up forever. So, you know, this is like, this is, it's, sometimes it's unbelievable. It's like a dream. I can't believe that uh, America has shifted like that in my lifetime, you know, on this matter. So Yeah, well, I'm smiling ear to ear. What a feel-good story. Well, fantastic. I'm so like, glad I'm featuring you. And what a coincidence that our interview just happens to be today. Yeah, it's a blessing. Yeah, wow. Um, lost my train of thought here. Forgot what I was going to ask you next. I'm so taken back. So uh, so let's talk about COVID. Mm-hmm. How has COVID impacted your practice? Um, Before COVID, I mostly was like, majority of my income was coming from speaking engagements. So we were just traveling a lot. I had uh, did the Sunday service with Kanye. Um, I had worked on the the Kim Kardashian, uh, her documentary, The Justice Project. And, you know, I just was traveling, speaking. I did a talk in San Francisco uh, at, at Apple, at the Apple store there, and I met my first collector. This one, I was just doing photo poetry because I started out in visual arts in November last year, just writing poetry on newspaper articles and pictures of myself when I was incarcerated. So I gave the talk in Apple, I met um, a guy named John Burbank, who's one of the owners of the uh, Golden State Warriors at the talk. He bought every piece of art that I had at that time uh, with my photo poetry prints, flew me into his house, let me stay in his house. It was an amazing experience. Um, and we, we still are friends to the day. So, and that was in February and then COVID hit in March. So I couldn't travel to speak and things that nature. Everything was like going to Zoom and, I just started painting. I just started painting. And um, I had a developed philosophy to paint about. I just never drew or sketched in my life before. So, um, so, and I had just before the COVID, I want to mention that too, just during the quarantine, the, the beginning of it, I had received a grant from the Art for Justice Fund, um, which was started by Agnes Gunn, a collector, after she watched the 13th documentary she sold one of her Roy Lichardson paints for $165 million and created this Art for Justice Fund. So me um, getting that sale to John Burbank for my art and then getting a grant from the Art for Justice Fund um, through the generosity of Agnes Gunn and her family, I had, like, capital to be able to invest into, like, big canvases and paints and oil sticks and... And I just developed my practice during the quarantine. I'm used to being locked down. So the lockdown, you know, <laughs> it was sad that people were getting sick and dying. But to be in the house, you got to think, I'm used to being locked down in a cell with no phone, no internet, no computer, no TV, no email, no nothing. So 
I had laptops and TVs and Playstations and printers and canvas and paint and oil sticks and, you know, streaming services. And I mean, I just had so much to be thankful for. And then my wife was pregnant, right, uh, with my first child. So I was like in heaven, you know, internally. And um, and I was, I was able, I started painting in March, and this is December 1st. And so far, I've been able to create like almost a, a body of work with like 200 paintings and um, to get signed by historically black female-owned galleries, uh, Dr. Stella Jones in New Orleans, the first person that saw Worthy to invest in me. Um, and that was, that was big for me because I was, you know, raised by mostly black women. And then recently I was signed um, by DTR Modern Gallery who has spaces in New York and Boston, D.C. and Palm Beach. And they just invested in me, you know, and poured into me and believe in my work. And, you know, people have been collecting my work. And I just, you know, it's just COVID. I know it's been sad for the world, but I've never been as blessed as I've ever been in my life until COVID came. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I discovered you on LinkedIn. Right. Which is unusual because most of the artists that I connect with, I, I find on Instagram. But I spend mm-hmm. a lot of time, you know, still in the, in the, in the business world. So I mm-hmm. found it interesting that you were there, and I'm, I'm glad I continue to follow you because you're 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 a fascinating young man. And um, I hope whatever artists are listen to this, that they are encouraged to um, to you know share their work on LinkedIn. I think most people just focus on Instagram, but for me, I looked at it like. A business. <laughs> it's a business, and the people with the money are probably more LinkedIn that's going to collect the work. So <laughs> it's not about getting a billion followers. It's about getting a billion dollars, yes. helping yourself and helping humanity. So I just saw, like, why would I neglect LinkedIn? Yeah, no, I, 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 I totally agree with you. I'm trying to encourage some of the artists and arts institutions that I work with to consider the platform. So I'm, I'm glad we connected. It's been great talking with you. Your story's fascinating. So this is our last question. Mm-hmm. You've pretty much answered it already, but indirectly, that is. What do you, what do you feel your role is as an artist? Hmm. As a poet, of course, I'm, I'm a freak for the etymology of words. So the etymology of art is to make things. Come from a Latin word, which means to make things, to make so as my responsibility as an artist is to make things that serve the purpose of love <laughs> and understanding, because we live in a world that encourages people to be everybody but themselves, their authentic self, right? So, and then we have, we live in a world and particularly a country where some inequalities have been allowed to perpetuate. And so sometimes I have to deal with some uh, serious and co- could be controversial political uh, subject matter. But I don't, I'm not dealing with this from a place of anger, right? I think a lot of times if you're a socially constructed black artist and you engage in certain subject matter to deal with race, class, gender, creed, or sexuality, you'll be perceived as like a, a, a angry black artist um, instead of a loving artist. So for me, my greatest responsibility is to uh, to deal with these serious topics that have been allowed to germinate, that perpetuate hatred, or let me say a lack of love, um, and to make things 
to get people to remove these filters of the social constructions of race, class, gender, creed, sexuality, and to see with love and to love the hell out of themselves in spite of it may not being popular <laughs> and to love those and appreciate those who love them and to even transcend to a space to consider and eventually actualize love for those who even for those who are convinced that they hate you um and that's that's my responsibility as an artist to make things to get people to that high level of love to where as though now not it's it's even a conceptualization and an actualization for those who openly hate you well it's heavy duty and i agree with you 100 percent uh love will trump hate for sure Thank you so much, and um, you should feel you. very proud for your accomplishments, and it gives me pleasure to, to share you with whoever listens. Thank Appreciate you. your time. Be blessed. Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram.